If you want to draw attention to yourself and make some money for yourself and start a fight and make a fool of yourself, just announce that you know the date of Jesus' return. Tell people that you have detailed information about how and when and where Jesus is going to arrive. And there has been a steady stream of people doing exactly that from the earliest days of the church. Most of those people have managed to convince at least a few others that they're right. Many of them have made money out of their predictions by writing books. Most of those end-time prophets have managed to start fights as well. And they've all made fools of themselves. The latest in that long line was a man called Harold Camping. He was the man who made the news by setting the date for May 21st of this year. You probably heard of him. But he seems to be undaunted by what he calls his miscalculation. I hear that he's come up with a new date. And I've managed not to pay attention to when that is. Because rather than listening to Harold Camping and men like him, we really ought to be listening to what Jesus says. After all, he's the one who's coming back. We ought to allow him to teach us about his return. So turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 21. In the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1056. Luke 21. We'll pick up at verse 5 after where we left off last week. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Some of his disciples were remarking how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish. 
By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly, like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is God's Word. And when we read this, the obvious question is, when Jesus spoke these words, was he speaking about the very near future or the more distant future? Was he speaking about the end of Jerusalem or the end of the world? And the answer is both. He was speaking about events that would take place about 37 years after his death. And he was speaking about events that have not yet taken place. They're still in the future for us. Jesus speaks here about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And he uses those events as a picture of his return at the end of time. So first of all, in verses 5 to 7, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We know that since he arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching in the temple every day. The temple Jesus is standing in is not the one built by Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed that one. This is the second temple. It was built after the Israelites returned from their exile in Babylon. And that second temple was then extended and refurbished by King Herod the Great. 
Herod's refurbishment was well underway by the time Jesus came along. And commentators tell us the place was pretty grand at this point. Herod used massive white marble stones, and the gates and doors of the temple were gold and silver plated. It must have been an impressive place. The disciples are certainly impressed. In verse 5, we're told some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Naturally, the disciples want to know some details. Verse 7, they say, Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? As we listen to the disciples here, it's important to realize that in the minds of the Jews, the destruction of the temple was linked to the end of time. The end of the temple and the end of time would happen together. That was the popular understanding of things. But we'll see that Jesus separates the two in our passage. He disconnects one from the other. The events surrounding the destruction of the temple will be very like the end, but they will not be the end. In verses 8 to 11, Jesus makes this point in a general way. He says, History will be full of events that look like the end, but they are not the end. The disciples have asked about the destruction of the temple. And Jesus will deal with that, but first he talks more broadly. First of all, he says, when it comes to the end of time, do not be deceived. Verse 8. Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. Jesus says if someone makes extravagant claims about themselves, and if they claim to know the timing of the end, then you know that person is a deceiver. That's very helpful for us today. If someone claims to be some sort of special prophet with inside information from God, if they claim to know the date of the end of the world, then we don't need to pay any more attention to them. Jesus has already told us that person is a deceiver. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus said, No one knows about that day or hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says, Even I don't know the time of the end. So don't be deceived by people who claim to know what even I don't know. Then in verse 9, Jesus says, Don't be frightened. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Every generation, every period in history has its wars and revolutions. It's natural disasters and it's fearful events. 
So Jesus says when wars and revolutions and natural disasters and fearful events come along in your generation, don't assume it's the end. Jesus is going to apply this to the destruction of the temple. We'll see that in a few moments. But we can also apply this to every generation since the destruction of the temple. History follows a pattern. We saw this when we looked at the book of Daniel. Throughout history, new leaders and regimes are always rising up to overthrow and to replace the previous ones. Tragic events happen regularly in history. So when we see these kinds of things, we are seeing the unfolding of God's plan. But we are not necessarily seeing the end of his plan. Jesus' words are as helpful for us as they were for these first disciples. When we see fearful events like earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan, like mass killers in Norway, or regime changes across the Middle East, we're not to panic. We're not to run after those who claim to have a personal copy of God's timetable. Why is this so important? Because if we get sucked into predictions about the future, we're likely to end up disillusioned. We're likely to shipwreck our faith. When human leaders and their forecasts let us down, it's easy to start thinking God has somehow let us down. Yes, we must be ready for Christ's return. We must live in expectation of his return. Jesus will get to that. But here his concern is that we avoid the mistake of laying today's newspaper beside the Bible and trying to predict God's timetable. Not only is that foolish, it's disobedient. It's trying to do something Jesus warns us not to do. Our passage began with Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. During the disciples' lifetime, they're going to see some fearful events up close. But now Jesus tells them that before the temple is destroyed, his followers are going to face times of testing. And alongside that testing, he promises that they will experience God's help. And Jesus' words are here for our benefit too. They teach us that history will be full of both difficulty and provision for God's people. In verse 12, Jesus says, but before all this. For the first disciples, this means before the destruction of the temple. Before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. Jesus mentions here persecution from official authorities. But alongside those difficulties is going to come God's provision. Verse 13, this will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Many of us wonder how we would hold up 
under persecution. Here Jesus says, if and when it comes, God will give you what you need. Sometimes we hear stories of Christians who stood up under great pressure. Men and women who were powerful witnesses to Jesus. Here we learn that their strength didn't come from themselves. It came from God's provision. They weren't some kind of super Christians. The explanation for their strength is that they serve a God who provides for his faithful people. It's important to notice in passing, this persecution is because of their allegiance to Jesus. It is on account of Jesus' name. This is not suffering that comes from our wrongdoing. Jesus is not telling us to expect God's provision in those situations. What he is saying is that even persecution is an opportunity to serve God, to witness for him. And he will provide us with what we need in those situations. Often, when circumstances don't go the way we want, our first reaction is to squeal for God to change our circumstances. But what we ought to be doing is asking how we can witness for God in our circumstances. As painful as things may be for us, what opportunity do they give us to be a witness to the love and power of Jesus. Jesus has spoken about persecution from official authorities. Now he mentions persecution from those close to us. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Now we know that God's provision does not always mean escape from pain or even escape from death. Verse 15 promised words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. But that doesn't mean they'll always listen. It doesn't mean they will always be won over. Throughout history, many Christians have been called to be witnesses by dying a martyr's death. Many of these first disciples are going to die as martyrs. The book of Acts records how Jesus' words came true for these men. All beginning with the first martyr, Stephen. There are many Christians alive at this moment around the world who will end up being killed for their allegiance to Jesus. Even so, we might wonder how Jesus' next words fit with his statement that some disciples will be put to death. Look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. So, are they going to die or aren't they? Well, unless we decide Jesus is contradicting himself within the space of two sentences, what he's saying here is that even death won't put an end to God's people. The man or woman who stands firm in their allegiance to Jesus, even to the point of physical death, that man or woman will gain eternal life. Life that can never be snatched away from them. 
This saying, not a hair of your head will perish, was a popular proverb. It occurs in other places in Scripture. And the point is, you will be secure. But notice the challenge that comes with Jesus' promise. He says, by standing firm, you will gain life. We have a responsibility to stay faithful in the midst of difficulty and trial. So we might wonder then, are we earning our way to heaven by standing firm? Well, that's not the message we get from the Bible. The Bible is clear that endurance, standing firm for Jesus, is the sign that we have true faith in Jesus. Perseverance is the sign of genuine saving faith. The true Christian will stand firm to the end because God will never let his children be lost. He will provide them with the strength they need. And Jesus' words here have been proven true for every generation of his followers. When we face difficulties as Christians, we must stand firm. We should neither be surprised by difficulties, nor should we be in despair over our own weakness. God will provide us with the strength we need. History will be full of both difficulty and provision for God's people. Remember, Jesus is replying here to the disciples' question about the temple being destroyed. He began his answer by saying that history will be full of events that look like the end, but are not the end. Now he applies this to the temple, and actually the whole city of Jerusalem. He says the destruction of Jerusalem will not be the end, but it will look like the end. Look again at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. This is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus says that Jerusalem and the temple within it are going to be flattened. And this is at least in part because the people of Jerusalem have rejected Jesus. The destruction of the city is going to be God's punishment on the city. Jesus said this back in chapter 19. There he also predicted the fall of the city. And he said it was because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jerusalem will be destroyed because the city did not accept that God had come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. What Jesus describes here happened in the year A.D. 70. That's about 37 years after Jesus was crucified. The Romans came and flattened Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that many thousands of Jews were killed at that time. And many thousands were captured. 
just as Jesus predicts here. Rome became God's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. Remember we said that earlier in the minds of the Jews, the destruction of the temple was linked to the end of time. The end of the temple and the end of time would happen together, they assumed. But Jesus wants his disciples to see that is not the case. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the fall of Jerusalem will not be followed by the end of history. It will be followed by the times of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It seems to be a reference to the period when God in his grace allows non-Jewish nations the opportunity to hear and to respond to the good news about Jesus. That would fit with Jesus' command after his resurrection in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. So we are still living today in the times of the Gentiles. The time God has allowed for the gospel to spread to all nations. No doubt when these first disciples see the horrors of Jerusalem's destruction, they're going to be tempted to think it's the end. But it won't be the end. And so they're not to lock themselves away in a bunker waiting to be beamed up to heaven. They're to continue serving God faithfully. Because the world still needs to hear about Jesus. The events in Jerusalem are a picture of what will one day happen to the whole world. It's a very sobering picture. It gives us insight into what's ahead for those who continue to oppose God's king. The judgment that fell on Jerusalem will one day fall on all those who fail to recognize that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a picture that calls us to respond to what God has done, to accept Jesus ourselves, and then to share the good news with others while God gives us time. Commentators agree that at this point in the text, Jesus moves on from describing the end of Jerusalem, and he begins to describe the end of time. Certainly we can see that he's speaking now about what will happen to the whole world, not just Jerusalem. He emphasizes that several times in the verses that are coming up. And as we read these next verses, notice how the end is going to look remarkably similar to many other terrible times in history. But notice too the one thing that sets the end apart from all those other times. Look at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up 
and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus describes natural disasters. He describes unrest among the nations. These are things that reoccur all the way throughout history. So what will make the end of time different? Jesus says the end will be announced by Jesus' return. In other words, you'll know it's the end when the king comes back, not before. Verse 27 is a quotation from the book of Daniel. It's from Daniel's vision in chapter 7. In the Bible, only God is described as riding on the clouds. There are about 70 passages in the Old Testament where God is said to come on or in the clouds. Scripture is clear, the clouds are God's chariot. But in his vision, Daniel sees a man riding on God's cloudy chariot. Daniel goes on to tell us that in his vision, this son of man approaches the Ancient of Days, and he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. It's no accident that Jesus chose the title Son of Man for himself. He is the man who rules with God's power and authority, the man who is God. And here Jesus says to his disciples, Every generation is going to have its upheavals, its wars, and its fearful events. So don't be sucked in by speculation about the end. When you see me returning in the clouds, then you'll know it's the end. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus made the same point back in chapter 17. He said, men will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In other words, Jesus says, don't worry about missing my return. It will be unmissable when it happens. And those who have rejected Jesus will cower and faint with fear on that day. But those who belong to Jesus will stand up and they will lift up their heads. Their king has come back for them. For God's people, that day will be a great day. Redemption in this context doesn't mean deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. It means deliverance from a doomed world. Jesus goes on in verses 29 to 31 and he says, Just as new leaves tell you that summer is near, so my return will tell you that the kingdom of God is near. Here he means the kingdom in all of its fullness. The kingdom when all opposition to Jesus' reign has been finally crushed. Jesus says, when you see me coming, you will know that all you've waited for is arriving. Hurt and pain are about to cease. Every tear is about to be wiped away. 
And this helps us to understand what Jesus says in verse 32. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. In the flow of what Jesus is saying, it is highly unlikely that he means you who are listening to me today will not pass away before this happens. It's much more likely he's saying those who see him come in the clouds will not die before the kingdom arrives in all of its fullness. So his point is, when I come back, this present sinful age is going to come to an end. When I come back, there will be no more getting on with normal life. You will not live out the rest of your life, eating and sleeping and going to work until you eventually die. All that will be cut short by my return. In verse 33, Jesus says, you can count on what I'm saying. My word is more solid than creation itself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So how are we to respond to Jesus' teaching here? Well, in a negative sense, we know that we're not to listen to predictions about the end. We're not to be deceived. Nor are we to be paralyzed with worry about the end. But positively, how do we respond to this? How is this to impact our lives tomorrow? In the final verses of our passage, Jesus tells us. He says, watch and be ready. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Earlier, Jesus described one wrong attitude to his return. The kind of attitude that all, that's always trying to calculate and predict the end. But here, he warns against the opposite mistake. Living like Jesus is never coming back. We're not to be careless about the return of the king. Hearts that are weighed down just means hearts that are insensitive. They're careless hearts. They're given over to things that have no lasting value. They're consumed with things that belong to this world that is passing away. Drunkenness is one example. Money would be another. Possessions, career. Preserving our looks is another. Mike touched on that last Sunday night from 1 Peter. Jesus warns us if you live in a way that disregards my return, if you allow yourself to be consumed and intoxicated with things that only belong to this life, then my return will catch you out. And he gives a vivid illustration. That day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. You'll be like an animal running through the forest. 
not alert to any danger. And then you're caught in the jaws of a trap. Jesus says, don't be careless about the return of the king. Instead, he says in verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. We not only need to be prepared for his return, we need to be praying for strength to stand firm in the faith, to resist temptation, to serve faithfully, those who do will be able to stand before the king when he returns. In other words, they will not be condemned with the rest of the world. One way we can keep Jesus' return in mind is by regularly focusing on it in our worship services. That's why it's so valuable to have songs that remind us of his return. The song we learned earlier says, We belong to the day. Let us journey in the light. That's the challenge for us. Some of us need to begin by committing our lives to Jesus. But for those of us who have done that, the challenge is to journey in the light. To live the way people live when they're waiting for the King. Turning from sin. Pursuing obedience and holiness living to honor and glorify God. This is how John puts it in his first letter. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Jesus says, watch and be ready. The close of chapter 21 brings us back down to earth with a bump. Verse 37. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Jesus has been talking about his return. Now Luke reminds us that before Jesus returns as king... He has to die on a cross like a criminal. We know that Jesus is not here in Jerusalem for fun. He's not on a sightseeing visit. He has come here to die. His teaching stint at the temple is going to be a very short one. We're going to discover that next week. But here, Luke has reminded us that we're in a brief calm before the storm. And this is a storm Jesus is walking into willingly. He's going to die so that when he returns as king, there will be a people waiting for him on this earth. A people drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. If Jesus hadn't died for our salvation, none of us would be delivered from the judgment that's coming. None of us would enter into eternal life with God. If we want to be ready for Jesus' return, we have to come to terms with his death on the cross. 
On the cross, Jesus took God's wrath. And he did it so that we need never experience God's wrath. We're going to close our time in God's word with a final song that reminds us that Jesus is our refuge from the coming wrath. Let's stand and sing the song that we learned earlier. We belong to the day. interpreters understand this as a reference to Jesus' death. He was cut off, but not for himself. Not for any guilt of his own. He died for the sins of others. That is how God would fulfill his plan to atone for sin. His son would die as our substitute. In Daniel's visions back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, God revealed that at the end of history, a powerful ruler would arise. He would set himself up in God's place. He would oppress God's people. That seems to be who the rest of our chapter is referring to, the rest of verses 26 and 27. Now certainly there is disagreement about that, Some see the ruler in these verses as the final anti-God figure. Some see him as just one of the long line of anti-God figures throughout history. But in any case, the basic point is the same. Since the cross of Christ, the world has been made ready for the end of history. If the whole of God's plan from Daniel to the end can be represented by 77s, then 69 of those sevens have already been worked out. God has opened up a way for men and women to be reconciled to him. On the cross, Jesus made atonement for sin. As the song says, the great redeeming work is done. The grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world has died. There is only one more work to be done. That's the return of the risen, anointed king. The day when he returns to finally crush all evil. The day when he leads his people into an eternity in the true holy city, the new heaven and earth. Whether that day comes one week from now or 10 or 20 years from now or 600 years from now, God's plan has only one more great stage. The tapestry of history has only one more great scene, the return of the king. This chapter is about prayer. 
And earlier we asked, if God has already promised to do something, why pray for it? Well, one of the great lessons of this chapter is that prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Daniel studied his Bible. He saw a great mountain peak among God's plans, the promise of a return from exile after 70 years. He gave himself to prayer. He came with a humble heart. He came with a desire for God's glory, with a reliance on God's mercy. He prayed for what God had promised to do. And what happened? His perspective was changed. His eyes were lifted up to see the greater heights of God's plans. A cross where sin would be atoned for. And a future day when sin and death would finally die. Prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Prayers like Daniel's bring us into deeper fellowship with the God of history. And in fellowship with him, we take on more of his perspective. We see further than our own little dreams and ambitions. And by his grace, we become a little more like him. So let's pray with God's great plan in mind. Let's make sure we're ready for the end of history. And let's respond now as we sing, let the earth resound with songs of praise.